Father, I love the fact that you give us hope. Even when the world is going in all different directions, you give us hope. You give us stability. You give us something to look forward to, and that is eternity. And we have your son, Jesus, to thank you for that. Father, as we begin the sermon this morning, I pray that you'll open our hearts and you'll remind us that in all things, you're in control. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Steve. I have a long, unrealized goal in my life. And I want you to follow all that out. I said I have a long, unrealized goal in my life, which means very simply, this has not happened yet, but I have not given up on it. I want to defibrillate somebody. I really do. I just think it would be super cool. Now, I'm talking about the paddles, squirt the gel on it, rub them together, yell clear, and jumpstart them. I've not been able to yet. I've come close three times. The first was with Gene OG, my friend Gene. Gene was having some heart problems, and he was wearing an external defibrillator vest. When he was on staff with us, he would come into the meetings, and he'd have his vest on, and I'd go over and sit by Gene. There was a button on the outside of it for an external manual defibrillation, and I would get close to pushing the button, and Gene would smack my hands and push me away, and he knew I wanted to do this in the worst of ways. Now, that wasn't the paddles. That's the goal. The goal is the paddles. But an external defibrillation, that'd be pretty cool too. And so I'd just get close and, and he just wouldn't let me do it. Would not let me do it. Another time I thought I was going to be able to realize my goal was at the church Tina and I served at in Missouri before we moved to Montana. I was the head of our security team and the people that had to watch over everything that was happening on the floor of the church service. And we had bought a new first aid kit, and it had these pads, defibrillator pads, attached to a machine. So if somebody went down, you would just lay the pads on them, push the button, and it would defibrillate them. So I, I kept that thing close at hand, thinking somebody's going to go down with a heart attack, and when they do, that is my moment to shine. And the little machine talked you through everything. As soon as you push the first button, it started with these words, remain calm. And then it talked you through every step after that. So I thought, what could possibly go wrong? However, when the senior pastor we worked with found out that I was keeping it close at hand, he locked it up, and I wasn't allowed to do it. This was my third opportunity. Just last September, we were over hunting on the east side when my youngest son choked on a dove bone. We'd been out hunting late in the evening and we got back and one of our guys had fried up a bunch of dove breast and so we were all eating them like it was our last meal and Eli had gotten a hold of one and when he took a bite there's a cartilage that runs across the top of a dove breast and he bit into that cartilage and it went down into his throat. I didn't know it, he was walking around with a loaf of bread and drinking water for all he was worth trying to dislodge it and thankfully Thankfully, we have a hunting camp doctor with us. Chad Rebo is part of our hunting camp. And so Chad came over and he was helping Eli and I just kind of sauntered up behind him and said, Chad, do you have the paddles with you? <laughs> and he said, I do. And Chad knows my goal. He knows I want to defibrillate somebody. I said, think we need to shock him? <laughs> he said, I don't think we need to shock him. 
I said, well, we could probably get it out if we just hit him with about 600 or so. Let's get him. We could get that bone out. Chad locked up his medical equipment after that. I I wanted to fibulate somebody. I, I don't know where it comes from, probably from watching shows all the way back in the 1970s until today. It just, ugh, just looks fun. But nobody will let me do it. I tell you all of that to say this. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has to defibrillate the church. They need to be recalibrated. They need to be shocked just a little bit. Back into a normal rhythm of life so that they can actually see clearly. In chapter 2 of that book, that's exactly what he does. He defibrillates the church. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It becomes really clear just as soon as you get into this chapter. You can see exactly what has knocked them off kilter. Here it is, verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's some things I want you to see for yourself today, and you're going to need to. So verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, right there, we find Paul putting the paddles on the the chest of this church that he loves. And he needed to because they were having a minor heart attack. They needed to be shocked back into normal rhythm. The reason they were having this minor heart attack, somebody, and we don't know who, but somebody wrote them a letter telling them that they were now living in the midst of the day of the Lord, that Jesus had come back for his church, and they had been left. They had been left. Scholars would actually say that this was a one-two punch. It wasn't just the letter. They really believed that the person that wrote the letter had been with the church and had actually, through what we would refer to as a prophetic utterance, had told them this exact same thing and then followed it up with a letter after they had left Thessalonica. So they believed it. They believed that the message was from God. They believed that it had been delivered to them in person and now it was being validated again. They were scared. They were scared. So the Apostle Paul had to write this letter to him. He was a spiritual father to him. He didn't want them living in that type of fear. So that's the purpose of this letter, to defibrillate them, to shock them back into normal rhythm. And in order to do it, he had to tell them, don't you be deceived like this. Don't you pay attention to things along these lines. It just isn't true. That's what Paul was telling them. That's a paraphrase, but that's what Paul was telling them. The Apostle John would have to do something similar to this at different times. And John actually left us a key for spiritual defibrillation. He left us a key to make sure that we never get pulled into false teaching like this. And it's the same type of thing that the Apostle Paul would want the church in Thessalonica to pay attention to. Keep your finger there in 2 Thessalonians 2, but join me in 1 John chapter 4. Just listen to what the old apostle writes. 1 John, it's the first letter of John near the end of your Bible. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even John was having to clean up messes from people that purported to be prophets. They would announce themselves to be apostles. They would try to claim the same authority that John had or Paul had in these different communities, and people were sucked right into it. So John gives us a wonderful interpretation slash doctrinal tool known as testing the spirits. Here it is, testing the spirits. It is nearly a command in the Bible. Now, I say nearly a command because it doesn't quite fit in the category of a command from God, but it is a biblical imperative for sure. We are to test every spirit that comes to us. Whether that is in word or whether that is in print, or maybe it even comes through music or on a TV screen, Whatever medium the Spirit comes to you in, it is your responsibility to test it, to make sure that it is from God. And there are three ways that you do that. Number one, you get into the Word of God and see if whatever message is being given to you matches what is taught in the entirety of the Bible. So you pay attention to the Word of God. Now, you can only do that after you have actually realized whether the person bringing the message is in agreement with you about the person of Jesus. So, looking at the Word of God really is step number two. The first step is to say, hmm, what's this person believe about Jesus and what are they teaching me about Him? Because if we're not in agreement about the person of Jesus, we don't need to go any further. If we don't agree on who Jesus is, whether he lived on this earth, died on a cross, was buried, and three days later rose again, and then ascended into heaven where he is waiting until his return to come back, then you and I may not have anything more to talk about. So that's really step number one. Step number two, then, is to get into our Bibles, into the Word of God, and see what the Bible has to say about this message. And then the third step in it is to measure that message against the will of God and the nature of God. If we cannot find something specific in the Word of God, the will of God and the nature of God will clear it up for us. So it's a three-part process of testing every spirit. And I say that to you with this great understanding. I don't expect you to believe everything that I say just because I say it. I expect you to test the Spirit. I expect you to test it against the Word of God. And if it's wrong, you come to me and let's talk about it. If it's wrong, then you come and set me straight. You test every spirit. If Dini is preaching, then you test the Spirit. If you have somebody teaching in different categories or different opportunities and they bring you a message that doesn't seem right, you test the Spirit and you do it utilizing those three things. Here they are for you one more time just up on the screen. What are they saying about Jesus? What does God's Word say about this? Does the message match the will and nature of God? That's how you test 
the Spirit. And it is something everyone should be practiced at. So don't just sit back and think to yourself, well, I can go ask somebody if I need to. Oftentimes, when that thought runs through your mind, it's too late. So make sure that you are familiar enough with the Word of God that you can test things against the Bible. If the church in Thessalonica had done that, they would have never had a problem. They would have never believed what this person was saying because Paul taught them while he was with them what they needed to look for in the day of the Lord. But he also gave them a promise. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's their first promise from Paul. More than likely, it's the second, third, fourth promise, because this is the letter that would follow. He had already taught them that their relationship with Jesus would protect them from the day of the Lord, from the thing this false teacher had told them they were living through right here and right now. It's not the only time he made that promise. Later on in the exact same book, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just promised it again. It is that second step in testing the spirits that would have saved them all kinds of grief. More than that, it would have saved them all kinds of fear. It really would have. Now, I say that because that first step, what we believe about Jesus, if we really do believe in Him, if we really have given our lives to Him, then there is no fear. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we have today the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John both telling us that we have no fear of the wrath of God if we're Christians, if we have committed our lives, our souls, and our eternity to Him, there is no fear of God's wrath. Isn't that great news? That is just great news. Because of Jesus, there is no fear fear. But for whatever reason, this young church in Thessalonica, they were struggling with it. And this false teacher was shoving them deep into an irrational fear. So let's just go back and take a look at what it was they were afraid of. We're back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll start again in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? 
So here's what they're afraid of. They are afraid that they have been left and are living in the day of the Lord. That's exactly what Paul, Paul calls it. Take a look up here on the screen. He refers to it as the day of the Lord. Now that's how Paul refers to something that we are a lot familiar, a lot more familiar with, with this title, the tribulation. John is the only person that uses that term tribulation, just as he's the one that uses the term antichrist. Paul chooses to refer to this seven-year period in prophetic teaching that we know as the tribulation. He calls it the day of the Lord. Reason that Paul calls it the day of the Lord is because the Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. It is such an ominous event that waits for us, you know, not for us as the church, but waits for humanity, those that are left, in the future. There are places in the Old Testament that speak of it. Like this from the prophet Joel. If you want to turn back to Joel, you can see it for yourself. Joel chapter 2, I know you were probably just reading in your devotions this last week in the Old Testament book of Joel. It's, it's a real popular one. If you need to find the book of Joel, here's the easiest way to do it. Go to the table of contents. You'll, you'll find it. In chapter 2, verse 1, the old prophet writes this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb upon the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moons are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And listen to how Joel finishes it. Who can endure it? It's the day of the Lord. Now the title over that section in my Bible in the Old Testament book of Joel is simply that the day of the Lord. That's probably why the Apostle Paul uses that terminology, because he was familiar with the Old Testament. He was a student of the Old Testament. So when he talks about the tribulation period, he's going to talk about the day of the Lord. It is so extreme that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself would say of that seven-year period that if it were not cut short, if God didn't put an end to it, not one person would survive it. That's the tribulation. Once it begins, 
at the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church, there is one disaster after the other coming so fast that no one would survive it. There's no rest from it. In a seven-year period, it's atrocious. And these poor folks in Thessalonica thought they were living in it. They thought they'd been left. They were terrified. They were Christians. They were terrified of it. But Paul, back in, in 2 Thessalonians, actually tells them, one of the ways that you know you're not is there is no man of lawlessness that has risen up, a global leader. Now, Paul uses that term, the man of lawlessness, to describe him. John would call him the Antichrist. That's the popular term that we know of. He is a ruler during this tribulation period, during the day of the Lord, that will come on the scene almost miraculously from nowhere. For the first three and a half years, he will appear, he will appear to be a wonderful man. He will appear to have been given by God. He'll even have a priest with him that will be spouting things that sound godly, but they are not. He'll be pushing religion right behind this man of lawlessness. But three and a half years into his reign, everything changes. In fact, the Bible would refer to it as the abomination of desolation happens. The temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, and this man will sit on God's throne. He will take his place on God's throne, believing that he is God. The Bible would tell us about the, the <clears throat> day of the Lord, about this tribulation period, that there are a lot of similarities between the Antichrist and Jesus. There'll be a lot of things that will appear to make him look just like our God, but he's not. He's an imposter. If you want to study all of that out, you can do it by going to Revelation chapter 6 and reading all the way through to Revelation chapter 19, the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, and how horrible it is. It takes 13 chapters in the book of Revelation to describe it, and right in the heart of it is this man, the man of lawlessness. But like I already said, he is an imposter. He is an imposter. And when he takes his seat on the throne in God's temple... He believes that he will have arrived exactly where he thought he should have been from the very beginning. One of the things that we learned from Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica and from John's writing in the book of Revelation is that he is really driven, he is really powered by Satan himself. And I want you to know this, that what happens with the Antichrist what happens with the man of lawlessness psychologically is really nothing more than projection. It is the devil projecting his own brokenness onto the man of lawlessness. He's been trying to do that with mankind since the beginning of time. He has been trying to project his own brokenness, Satan has, onto all mankind. His brokenness says... I can be like God. And when that comes to rest on us, we have people that believe the same thing. I can be like God, or I can be a God. This is one of those things to not just believe me on. You test the Spirit against the Word of God. So let's go together to Genesis chapter 3. 
We'll start in verse 1. It doesn't take very long before you see this. This is the brokenness of the devil. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And since then, he's been projecting that exact same message over and over and over again. That's the commonality of it. You can be like God because that's what Satan wanted. In fact, that's what got him kicked out of heaven. He wanted to sit on God's throne. He wanted to take his place. God kicked him and a third of the angels out of the heavenly realm because of it. Humanity's been fighting it ever since. Since time began, humanity's been fighting it. This man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, well, he's going to be the embodiment of that brokenness powered by the devil himself. Listen, though, to his end. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. Pick up in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, he'll find his end at the simple appearing of Jesus after, after the day of the Lord, at the end of the seven-year period, or after that part of the day of the Lord. After those seven years of tribulation, Jesus will come. Jesus will come. And when he appears, the man of lawlessness has no more power. It's just over. The words of his mouth, Jesus puts an end to it. So Paul is trying to teach the church in Thessalonica, this guy hadn't shown up, what are you worried about? This is one of those things that that I told you about. In fact, Paul would actually say those very words. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul says that to them to remind them of the truth. They not only had him in person, but they had his first letter to test this spirit against. And Paul says, I told you about the man of lawlessness. I told you that he would show up. I told you to be careful of all of that. I warned everybody about it. And why did you believe somebody else? Don't you know that when I was with you, I told you this? As a pastor, I love the fact that Paul said what he said there. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Folks, I don't want you to ever say, I don't want anybody in Libby Christian Church to ever say that our pastor never told us of what was coming. 
I don't want anyone to ever be able to say, our pastor never said that we better give our lives to Jesus because the time will come when it is too late, either in death or in the rapture of the church, and the day of the Lord then commences. I don't want anybody to say that you weren't warned. And that's what Paul was saying. I told you about all these things, so you were warned. You just have to pay attention. You just have to listen to it. But if you have Jesus, you have no fear. If you have Jesus, there are no worries. As bad as that will be, there are no worries. And I want to make sure that that no one ever says that our pastor just tried to scare us into Jesus. I don't want to scare you into Jesus. I want to invite you into Jesus. I want you to know what he brings into your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And in the process of all of that, he brings a peace over things that wait in history. He brings a peace over that so that there's no fear. Man, what a gift from God. What a gift from God his son is. Now let's go back into 2 Thessalonians because I want to show you a couple of really intriguing things. We're going to start here in verse 6. And you know what is restraining him, meaning the man of lawlessness or antichrist. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, there is so much teaching in those two verses that we could just hang out here for a while. We really could. But we're just going to spend a few brief moments with it because this is something. If you will slow down and read those two verses critically, you're going to see a couple of really, really cool things. Beginning with this, the day of the Lord is currently being restrained. It is currently being held back. And Paul says it this way, and you know what is restraining him, meaning the man of lawlessness, but also the coming of the day of the Lord. You know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. And until the right time, this whole series of events is being held back. But when you go on into verse 7, it gets more intriguing. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. This is such a unique passage of Scripture. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Take a look at this. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Boy, I hope you're scratching your head. I really hope you're scratching your head. Because there is a a fun little transition that happens in this passage. And it happens between what and he. Here, we'll, we'll just bring it out. What and he. There's a a huge transition that takes place. And if you will slowly read Scripture, if you will critically read Scripture, this will jump off the page at you because we go from two distinctly different descriptors in the midst of two verses. We start with the what and we end with the he. If you're a note taker, you may want to just circle both of those words in your Bible and make them stand out. Now listen to me. The what is the church. The he is the Holy Spirit. 
The what is the church. The he is the Holy Spirit. The church, for the better part of 2,000 plus years, has been the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. And when the church is caught up and taken out of here, then the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth. When the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, all the restraints that the Holy Spirit brings, that the church brings, will be removed. And that's why things can be as bad as they will be. Because the Holy Spirit isn't here anymore. The Holy Spirit is external at that point. But currently, the Holy Spirit is here through the church. Spirit-filled Christians make up the church. Let me show you something that maybe you'll always, from this point forward, see in a different light. This is in Acts chapter 2. Right after Peter preaches at Pentecost, we read these words. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Up until that point, the church was made up of 120 people. After Pentecost, 3,120 people that had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, the church has stood every day since. Every day since. Because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in the church. The Holy Spirit binds the church together. So all of the attacks through 2,000 years against the church have failed. They have failed. And the church stands today because the Holy Spirit binds her together. When the Lord takes His church out, things will change. Currently, though, every Spirit-filled person that makes up the church is the restraint against those days. People will become Christian after the rapture of the church. Lots of people will become believers after the rapture of the church. But the Antichrist will very quickly, according to what the Bible tells us, put them to death. Ever wondered why? What's the threat to the Antichrist, people becoming Christian? He's already risen in power. He's already sitting on the throne. What's his worry? His worry is the spirit. If the church starts to take root again during that time, He's restrained. So he's going to murder. He's going to murder these new believers. The book of Revelation tells us that there'll be a special place in heaven for those that become believers during that time period. God has a special place for them. It's pretty cool, actually, when you read about it. But the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, he doesn't want the church here. And when the church is gone, there are some other things that can happen unrighteousness will begin to reign because there is no restraint. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. We're almost done. Stay with me. Let 
Verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God sends them a strong delusion. That just doesn't seem to make sense. That doesn't seem to match the word of God. So let's test the spirits here, shall we? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when we read that and we find out that that's the word of God and that's the will of God and that's the nature of God and it's all about Jesus, then this idea that God sends a strong delusion to people that will take them away doesn't seem to make sense. Well, one of the things that we know is that the closer we get to the return of Christ, people will quit caring about the things of God. Even the church will quit caring about the things of God. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Paul says to me. Boy, it's not really difficult for us to understand that passage because today the church has lost a a lot of its voice. The church, the church has lost a lot of its strength in communities because the church has believed that it's more important to share what people want to hear than what they need to hear. The church has gotten to a place where they have believed that popular theology, popular ideology is more important than God's theology than God's teaching. And that's a shame. That's a shame. So Paul says to Timothy, you preach the word. You preach the word. You hold to the truth. Because as long as you hold to the truth, people are still coming to know Jesus. As long as you hold to the truth, people are still giving their lives to him. There was a study done just last year, and it had been going on for two years prior to it. So through the the period of COVID, here's what their study discovered. Pew Research or the Center for Pew Research and the Barna Research Council both came together on this. Here's what they discovered. People are leaving mainline denominations in droves to turn to evangelical churches that are preaching the truth because people want to hear truth. They don't just want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. And the largest growth globally is in churches that are preaching the truth that are calling unrighteousness unrighteous, people that are calling lies lies, people that are putting forward the truth and saying this is the truth. That's where people are going to. And those mainline denominations that have been allowing themselves to say what people's itching ears they believe want to hear are dying. They are dying. But in the process of it, a lot of folks are also just leaving the church. They're leaving the church. A deception comes, and God allows it as people desire it. And as people lose their hold on the truth, 
then the deception takes root and unrighteousness begins to grow. And all of it is a sign that we are getting closer and closer to the return of Christ. And when the church is taken out, there is no longer a governor over unrighteousness. And it will, it will flourish. It will flourish during the day of the Lord. That's what Paul's teaching. So as we watch trends, as we watch what happens in culture around us, as we see people forsaking truth for their own pleasures and desires and unrighteousness taking root, we can know that we are getting closer to the sounding of the trumpet and Jesus coming for his church. That's pretty cool. Hebrews chapter 10 has the apostle Paul, we believe, as the author, saying this, Therefore do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That's written to the church. That is written to the church. Warren Wearsby would make this statement. Prophetic teaching is not for the purpose of us building a calendar, meaning it's not about trying to figure out a timeline and telling people this is when Jesus is coming back. Wearsby says the purpose of prophetic teaching is not for building a calendar. It is for building character. I like that, which simply means we have to determine where we're going to be at in the midst of all of it. I hope you're with Jesus. If you are, then get into the book of Ephesians and answer for yourself this question. How am I supposed to live as the time draws closer? Paul will give you the answer. I was going to share it with you today. We're out of time. So I'm just going to encourage you to get into the book of Ephesians and read it for yourself. Because the time is drawing closer. But friends, do not leave here today without hearing me say this so that you can say, see, he told us this. If you are in Christ, there is no fear of what waits. If you are in Jesus, there is no fear of anything because perfect love and he is perfect love cast out all fear. You make sure you're in Jesus. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, I get excited about this kind of stuff. A lot of words get shared in that excitement. I pray the right ones went to the right place. More than anything, I pray that people hear and grasp that in you there is no fear. And I also pray, Lord, that every one of us learns the power of testing the spirits so that no one can deceive us. Be that about the day of the Lord and your coming, or be that in false teaching that just sounds good because that's what we want to hear. Father, make us all students of your word. But make us lovers of you, that we will know your will and your nature as if it is our own. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, for salvation, for hope, for love, and for peace. I thank you for all of that in Jesus' name as I ask you to stir the hearts of those that need to make their decision for you. And Father, I'd ask you to stir the hearts of those that have but have wandered away Bring them back, Lord. Bring them back to a place of peace 
and perfect love through your Son. Again, in His name, we ask it. Amen.